Hey, well, as I said, my name is Aiden, one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad you're joining us. I, uh, you know, we're still, as we're still meeting online in this way, if you've been watching services online, there's the fun, like, Zoom call things you still get to do. Like right now, I'm preaching in my slippers, but you can't see my feet. So it's my favorite way to preach, is wearing my slippers. But as, as a pastor uh, here at Grace, one of the things that, that uh, is on my mind and heart a lot as we kind of are jumping into this series and a lot of things we kind of lead people, even from my own walk of faith, and even as a father, I think about how much uh, the, the cultural currents that we all live in kind of shape us in a lot of ways that we're not even aware of. Like, I'm always intrigued by that. I think about things like the rhythm of, of consumerism or kind of the, the heightened emphasis on self-discovery, sometimes the, the, the heightened obsession with like individuality and who we are that are just so native to our lived experience. And I think about how many of those things aren't necessarily bad all the time, but they can grate against our understanding of the way in which Jesus has called us to live. And I think some of those things are obvious, right? Our, our iPhones, Dan kind of threw up the picture last week of, you know, narcissists almost looking into a phone, right? Social media, that these things are like real clear. You can study how they change us, how they shape us. Some ways are good, but how a lot of ways can be kind of rough, right? But I'm always intrigued as a pastor about how so many of the little things that we don't even realize, how many just small things can be so embedded in our day-to-day that shape this consumerism and individuality that change us, that impact the way that we relate and follow Jesus. I don't know how I stumbled upon this, but I stumbled upon this, this article from like the 70s in this architectural magazine. And the, the article was called From Porch to Patio. From porch to patio. And it talked about how from the year 1860 to 1960, in those hundred years, how our attitudes towards ourselves and others, it talked about how, how some of these things changed and bared out in architecture. It was very interesting, right? It was a, reflected in architecture, how different, you know, after the wars, kind of consumerism grew because we needed to keep production up and you saw the rise of the suburb and all these different things that kind of changed in culture after the Great Wars. And it talked about this, from porch to patio. It talked about the idea how... Earlier on, you know, 1860 and early, that when a, when a house was built, the porch was kind of a big deal, right? I see this in the South a lot, probably, right? That the porch was a big deal because the porch was kind of this gateway to the world, right? You'd talk to your neighbors, talk to the people on the street, the milkman, the paper boy, evening TV. Like you would just see, you would see people on the porch and it would have all these kind of natural kind of communal aspects to the porch, right? But the article talks about how as culture changed, that these things became kind of private and individualized and went from porch in the front of the house, meant for socializing, to the patio in the back of the house, which was just kind of for me. And the article says this. I'll throw this quote up here. This is fascinating. It says, 20th century man has achieved the sense of privacy in his patio, but in doing so, he has lost part of his public nature, which is essential to strong attachments and a deep sense of belonging or feelings of community. It's interesting. Whether the patio is surrounded by walls or left open, it usually remains in the rear of the house, providing privacy, but creating a barrier to informal social con- contacts once provided by the porch. In the hurried flight from commuter vehicle to the sanctuary of the home, there is no time or real desire for informal contacts, without which a sense of belonging is difficult to establish and maintain. I thought that was so interesting. So interesting that even the ways our houses are built kind of reflect our individuality. I think this article from the 70s points to something that we can all kind of see in our culture, whether it's Disney Channel, inspirational posters, colleges, or even how buildings are constructed. 
It seems that our culture is bent on helping us discover ourselves or find this ideal life that caters to ourselves, but perhaps something that we don't always consider in this pursuit of our individuality and ourselves and the life that we want for ourselves is that route runs parallel with our need for belonging. It runs parallel with our need for belonging. What often happens is that our tanks of freedom and individuality and who we want to be can be bursting at the seams But we know this. These last couple years have even highlighted this for us, that our tank filled with community can be bone dry. We can have all the freedom, all the individuality, all the do what we want to do, get the TV channels that we want, whatever, whatever, can be bursting. But oftentimes our relationships and our community and our belonging can feel like it's run dry. And so what has kind of happened in our culture is that we pursue forms of belonging and things like networking, right? Not bad things, but things like networking, which is really just kind of a list of contacts that is kind of based on our needs or our connections that can kind of advance who I am. We see tribalism is such a big deal. Dan mentioned this last week, which a lot of times tribalism is rooted in the things that we hate, right? Like we all don't like something, right? That's a lot of what we see kind of belong show up as today. Sometimes we see this just in camps that we we kind of get ourselves in, whether it's theological camps, political camps, ideological camps, whatever it is, we, we find our belonging there with a bunch of people that just agree with us on certain things. And what happens is that all these things are essentially still rooted in our own preferences, right? They're still rooted in our own preferences and the things that we like, right? But what Dan mentioned last week is it I, I don't think that these things are mutually exclusive, that we see that things like loneliness and mental health struggles and identity crisis and division are just rising and right. We see this everywhere. Like, I'm not going to talk about this forever because we're tired of hearing about it, but we know that it's true. And I wonder if that has anything to do with the way in which our belonging and community is found is still rooted in our individuality, which is exactly why for the rest of the month, we started off the series last week called Life Together, called Life Together, where we are looking at, we're looking at a few chapters in the book of Romans Towards the end of the, the first half of the book of Romans is all like this, this deep unpacking of the story of Jesus and the intricacies of the gospel and how this plays out for Jew and Gentile alike. And Paul gets to later in Romans and he starts to unpack what this life of following Christ looks like together, some of the details of this. And what we see is that, that we're looking at this picture of Jesus, this picture that he has for his people in light of what he has done, that it starts from a different place and it bears different fruit than that of the world that we are in. Dan kind of used this analogy last week of sledding, right? That oftentimes we sled down a hill and he told the story how he kind of kept going down this hill as a kid and kept hitting the same, the same unmovable target. And we feel that in our relationships. No matter what we do, if we're following the patterns of this world, we'll keep sledding down the same hill, keep having the same relational, landing the same relational places built on our preferences. But Jesus has come to carve a new path, a path that is rooted in the cross, That our relationships, our community, our life together is rooted in the cross of Jesus. We always see one another through the beam of the cross. That God created us in Genesis 1, life together, created humans. It was not good for man to be alone. That we had relationship with God, relationship with one another. That we walked and communed together. But we know the story that sin distorts, separates our relationship from God. But also our relationship from one another. We don't trust each other. We don't have each other's best interests in mind that we have become priority number one. And from Genesis 3 on, we see this pattern time and time again. So you read through your Bible, I'd encourage you to see this pattern, this pattern of sin that puts ourself in the center and starts to kind of look out for ourselves and question the others around us. 
But the cross that we see, we just celebrate Easter, we celebrate this every week, the cross reconciles, just as God has reconciled us back to himself, that that relationship is fractured, that Jesus has made a way to bring us back into community with the Trinity, with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He has reconciled us, that it would be silly to think that that reconciliation also doesn't extend to one another. That what was lost in the garden was redeemed at the cross and now this relationship is reconciled to one another. That we look at one another with the beam of the cross between us, seeing Jesus who's reconciled us to himself in between us as we are reconciled to one another. At the cross, we see our own need. At the cross, we see our own desperation. At the cross, we see how we have all fallen short. At the cross, we see that redemption is possible through sacrifice. And when we look at someone through the cross, we see them different. We see life together different. And so today, Paul gives us a simple, a simple but powerful picture of what this community should look like and some unique intricacies of this community. But he also gives us the purpose of this community. And it's not centered on ourselves. It's not centered on our preferences, but it's centered and rooted in the cross. And so I want to look at this together uh, today. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, we're going to be in Romans 12. You can open back up to Romans 12. I'm using this clicker. We're going to see if I can do it. Got it. All right. We're going to be in Romans 12. And what we looked at last week was the first two uh, verses. We talked about in view of God's mercy. Is God's mercy as the lens to which we're having this conversation. In view of God's mercy, where Christ gave up his body on the cross. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. We said, in light of Christ giving his body, offer your body, offer your life, offer your preferences for the sake of the body, for the sake of others, for the sake of the church. That's what we're looking at today. And so this whole conversation is all through the lens of God's mercy. Look what Paul says in Romans 3 through 8, and we'll kind of unpack this for the rest of today. He says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others." He says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now this passage, as you read it, it's all in view of God's mercy and it helps us to see some things differently. It's countercultural to the world that we grew up in. The lens of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, we see some things differently. This passage points us to. The first thing is this, is that we see ourselves honestly. Through the lens of the cross, we see ourselves honestly. Look at verse three. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. It's interesting how Paul, as we talk about in view of God's mercy, offering ourselves for the sake of the body, and he almost gives this disclaimer. Before he goes into gifts, before he talks about the, he almost has this disclaimer that we should have a humble view of ourselves, a sober view of ourselves, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought because we so often, especially in our American culture, 
that the things we have is because we worked hard, because we studied hard. And, and some of those things are true, but when it comes to the body of Christ, when it comes to our spiritual gifting, when it comes to being part of the family, that we entered by grace, and the abilities we have for the sake of the church are through grace, to have a sober view of ourselves. We, we often attribute our successes, gifts, abilities solely to ourselves. And oftentimes we can have a critical view of others. We can have a dishonest view of others, but what Christ says is not think of yourself more highly. Uh, I, I've stumbled upon this a couple different times. I don't know if this is psychology or sociology or what it is, but there's this, there's this term called the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error. Now, I just think this is interesting, and this is, this is what it is. The fundamental attribution error refers to an individual's tendency to attribute others' actions to their character or personality while attributing their own behavior to external situational factors outside of their control. In other words, you tend to cut yourself a break while holding others 100% accountable for their actions. What this kind of looks like is if you're late to a meeting, if you're running late to something, you're like, ah, it's because of my situation, it's because, you know, my baby and I'm stressed and my flat tire, where if someone else comes in late to a meeting, you're like, they're just lazy. They're just always late, right? That we, we account for ourselves by situations, by other people, it's their personality. And we do the same thing when it comes to relating to one another in the body of Christ. We can say, man, I'm where I'm at because of my, who I am. But that person's where they're at. They just got lucky. Or they're just, they were just blessed with that. Like that's, they didn't do anything for that. And we can kind of have this same thing where we give ourselves a break, but we're critical of others. But Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. I stumbled upon this Peanuts article. Hopefully you can see this. I think this is Linus and Lucy. I forget their names. But Linus says to Lucy, why are you always so anxious to criticize me? And she says, I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. He said, what about your own faults? She says, I have a knack for overlooking them. That that is so many of us. That's where so often we can fall And what Paul is saying is that we need to see ourselves honestly. See ourselves honestly is where we need to start. It's one of his first commands as we talk about entering relationships with humility. If we don't begin with humility, we won't pursue understanding one another, understanding where each other is coming from. We will withhold grace from others. If we don't have a humble view of ourselves, we will count other people's sins against them all the while accepting God's forgiveness for us. That us experiencing God's forgiveness and extending forgiveness, it comes from the same, the same drawer. It comes from the same drawer. We cannot accept it, but not extend it. That's ridiculous. It doesn't make it easy. But when we look at each other through the beam of the cross, it changes the way we see each other. That if we don't begin with humility, we will get frustrated, frustrated and disappointed with our community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. It's a wonderful quick read or listen. I encourage you to check it out. He said, it's those who have this ideal dream of community that those are the people who are going to ruin it. As opposed to those who, this is who my community is, accepting the people that I've been placed with and in life together. That we'll be disappointed if we don't first begin with humility. In Philippians 2, Philippians 2 is this, almost this poem that points to our relationships with one another are reflective to the way in which Christ humbly came to us by setting aside his glory and coming and living one of us and dying an embarrassing, humiliating death on a cross. And if that's the humility of which our God stepped down into this world, then what might it look like for us to not view ourselves more highly than we ought, but to have sober judgment is what Paul says. To have sober judgment, realistic, humble, self-aware understanding of ourselves. Not, not proud, Not like, let me show you how to do these things. Let me enter this pride. But also not in a a self-deflating, well, I'm no good. I can't do anything. I'm not helpful. 
because that's just pride. That's pride shrouded in a a false sense of humility. But he says to have sober judgment, sober judgment as we see ourselves, that we see ourselves honestly. But he also says this, I'm working on this clicker, guys, I'm working. That, That as we, through the lens of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, that we see ourselves honestly, but we also see the picture that Christ has given us for one another, for his church. The picture he gives us is this picture of the body of Christ. Look what he says. For just as each of us has one body, we all got a body, right? We all got bodies. Just as all of us are bodies, many members, fingers, hands, eyes, ears, all this stuff. All these members do not have the same function. My hand does something different than my ears, right? We all know that. That's the simple picture that he's giving. He says that so in Christ, we, though many, though there's many of us, the body of Christ is made up of people all throughout history, time, space. There's many of us make one body. That's the body of Christ. And each member, I would underline this in your Bibles. We belong to one another. Just as my hand, my hand is connected to my arms, connected... My elbow, my hand can't move without my elbow. We belong to one another is what Paul is saying. Now, what's interesting, I was studying for this, is it wasn't uncommon for at the time for pagan groups to use this idea of the body to show how everyone is different, right? Like, we, we, you probably see that. You can use that in preschool or in a job. Like, it's, it's not an uncommon analogy. This idea of the body wasn't something Paul just came up with and was like, oh, they'll get this. But it would have been a used term to, to describe different things. However, what Paul, the way in which Paul uses this to describe the body of Christ is unique in the fashion in which he uses it. Because the body would have been used to communicate hierarchy, right? That the brain and the eyes, that those are the important parts, but elbows and toenails, not as important. So I'm an elbow, or you're an elbow, and I'm a brain, so get beneath me because I am more important in this hierarchy. That's the way in which culture would have used it. Yet Paul flips us upside down in light of Christ because it's not the case in the body of Christ. When we look at the body of Christ, the head of the body, what scripture tells us, is Jesus. The head of this operation, the one who is in control of this body is Christ. That we we all belong to one another, but ultimately we belong to Christ as the head of the body. And Jesus gives all gifts equally through the Spirit. And the picture Paul gives is rooted in unity and diversity. Those are two words you could write down. That in the body of Christ, we see a unique unity. We belong to one another. We are one body. But there's also this diversity that we all have different functions. We don't have the same function. That we see unity and diversity. We see this unique unity as the body of Christ in this picture that he is giving us. That God's mercy allows us to see the lens of this picture. That we as many individuals make up the body of Christ. Now think about this. If you were Satan and you wanted to disrupt the work of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus, what would you do? You would attack the unity. And this is not hard to see today. We see unity being chipped away. And we are not seeing each other through the beam of the cross. But we are seeing each other through the patterns of this world and not trusting, not pursuing understanding, not forgiving, not giving grace, but we're following the patterns of the world. And we see Satan getting his hands in the unity of the church. 
It's so unique. We talked about this uh, earlier this year, but in, in, in John 13, kind of through 17, Jesus has this conversation with the disciples. And in John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples. Then Jesus specifically prays for those who come to believe in their message, for you and me. And one of the things he prays is that we would be one just as Christ and the Father are one, that we would be one, that we would have unity. So much through the New Testament, we see this being like-minded, having the same heart in Christ. Unity is essential. In this picture Paul paints for us that Jesus gives us is this picture of one body, that we belong to one another. I have, I have friends that I've grown up with have a great relationship. I didn't go away for school. Uh, I met a lot of my friends kind of high school. I'm still friends with a lot of them, work with some of them. We have a great relationship. I love my friends, and what's, what's fun about friends is that you can pick them. You can pick your friends, and you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. I, I'm a dad, and I couldn't resist saying that, but you can pick your friends. And what's interesting is you pick your friends. I'm really sorry about that. And you pick your friends, and your friends, oftentimes, they like the same things you like. They're into the same movies. They kind of might have a similar temperament. Like, we can pick our friends, right? It's not bad. It's great. But your family is who you're born in. Like your family is who you got, right? And your family, you may like love your family and be super close with your family. So you might like family can be super hard sometimes, right? And it's hard because you didn't just pick them, but you belong to one another. So whether it's joy, whether it's hurt, whether it's hard communicative things, for better, or for worse, family, you belong to one another. You have this bond to each other for life because you're family. It's just different. I know that there can be so many different family pains. I understand that. But for the sake of today, for the picture, family, we belong to one another in a unique way. And if, if we belong to one another, which is what Paul's saying, that we have a unique responsibility. That so often the way that kind of individualism kind of infiltrates our culture is that we can just show up to an event and leave. But if we belong to one another, we have a responsibility to one another within the body to let people into my life, into my pain, into my struggles, into my questions, into my joys, to let people in, but to also care for the other, to also stick it out with people. I have, I have been at Grace my entire life. My parents came in the 80s, and I have had the benefit of being part of this in my whole life. And being a kid growing up, you see people come and go for all kinds of reasons, good, bad, ugly, beautiful, indifferent, whatever. You see people come, (laughs) missionaries leave, people leave ticked, people show up to the hospital, people show up looking for all across the spectrum, people come and go. But I am always amazed at the people who have stuck it out, to the people who have been through change, who have, you know, the, the entertainment of church has waned away, and they're committed to the body. They've stuck it out through thick and thin. Like, I admire those people who are here because they're like, this is my body. This is my family. Where else am I going to go? This is my family. I love that. That if we belong to one another, we we consider the body we're making decisions. I I think of different people who have even even made geographical decisions based on the body. Like, uh, that's encouraging, right? That we belong to one another. That if we have responsibility to be an active part of the body, not because we like the music or the preaching or power kids, we have preference, that's fine. But we have this responsibility to one another. We're an active part because we're committed to one another. We're going to unpack this in a couple weeks, this idea of being devoted to one another. That if we belong to one another, just as my hand belongs to my elbow, belongs to my shoulder, belongs to my sternum, whatever, that we belong to one another. 
And for some of us in our culture, like that feels like a little much, man. Like, and all these people, some of them, these people are weird. Some of them are obnoxious. Some of them are hurtful. Some of them are great. It can feel like a, a, a lot to us, but maybe, maybe we have been so, so used to the waves and the patterns that are native to our culture. Maybe for so long we've been living on the patio, not even realizing that our house had a porch, right? We've been living so much of the me and Jesus life that we have missed how big and beautiful that this thing actually is and can be. That unity, the body is unified. It's central to the mission of Christ and the heart of Jesus. We cannot follow Jesus apart from one another. It's silly. It's not how it works. But the other piece of this, the other unity, but there's also diversity. Sometimes we can get unity confused with uniformity. So we all have to like the same music, use the same words, think the same way, have the same gifts, have the same perspective. That's uniformity. The beauty of unity is that we all come diversely from different backgrounds, from different understandings, from different walks of life, from different... I love that, right? Paul says, the members, though we're one body, we don't all have the same function. Our stories, experiences, viewpoints, abilities, gifting bring this beauty to the body of Christ. I remember talking to a guy once who was telling me about some cool church plant uh, in some urban area somewhere that they were doing. And he's telling me how all these young people, because all these young people, and I, somewhere in there they told me that, oh yeah, we've only got a couple of these people that are like older than 50 and everyone's so young. And I was like, that's a dang shame. That's a dang shame. You're missing this beautiful picture of diversity of experience from older generations, younger generations, socioeconomic, racial, all these different pieces of diversity make up the body. But what we look at in this picture of the body is that very specifically, as Jesus is the head of his body, he has given us very specific gifts. As parts of the body, our experiences, our abilities, our understanding, all those things contribute to the body of Christ. But there's this unique sense in which Christ is ahead through the Spirit, gives us gifts as followers of Jesus. Look at verses 6 through 8. It says, We have different gifts according to the grace given. That spiritual gifts are, are, are uniquely given through the grace of Christ to each of us. Then he says, If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, teach. If it's encourage, and give encouragement. If it's giving, give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Regarding whatever your spiritual gift is, Paul is clear. Use it. Use your gift. And it's apparent in this passage that Paul says, the heart and the spirit to which you practice this gift is important. He's like, if you, if you give, if you have this gift of like financial like intelligence and you can just do give and do so generously. If you, if you have this ability to serve and to seek out the needs of others, do it. Serve, serve. If, if you're able to teach, do it. Like the heart by which we do these things, lead, do it diligently. Don't just be like, I guess I can be in charge. Do it diligently. Feel the weight of it. That's what Paul says. I want to mention just a, a few a few notes on, on spiritual gifts as we talk about diversity. A couple a couple quick notes is that we, we see this idea in a lot of the letters to the churches that Paul writes. In Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, we see some lists of different spiritual gifts. And there's lots of different debates. Have some spiritual gifts ceased? Are some ongoing? We're not going to get into that. But there's many different gifts. Teaching, healing, administration, hospitality, serving. We see different gifts played out. But a, a gift isn't, isn't based on the quality of the gift. Like, oh, these ones are better. These, that's why he says to have a humble view of ourselves. 
and the, these lists, but the, they're rooted. They're rooted on the one who gives the gift, which is the Holy Spirit through Christ. It's rooted on who gives the gift, that the gift is a unique manifestation of God's grace in our life for a specific purpose within the body. What I mean is that, that as we see these different lists, as we see these different lists, kind of these different passages, I don't think that those are necessarily exhaustive, that many of us might have one of those spiritual gifts. And those might encompass a lot of different gifts, but they might not necessarily be exhausted because the gift isn't, hey, here's the four certain gifts or here's the 20 gifts, but it's grace given by Christ that might show up in many different ways. God is a big God in the scriptures. We see God's spirit empowering people in many different and unique ways all throughout the scriptures for very specific purposes. That God empowers people through his spirit for very specific purposes. And it's likely that these gifts that God gives can be as broad and unique as God himself, right? That perhaps one of us is great at playing the flute. I don't know. Great at playing the flute. We just have this ability to learn the flute. That's great. But it might not necessarily be a spiritual gift. It might just be something we're good. Or is there a chance that God might, for a very specific purpose, give someone the spiritual gift of playing the flute? This is a bad example, Right? Think about in, in Exodus, in Exodus 31, one of the first times that we see it written in scripture that, that God gave his spirit on someone for a very specific purpose was a guy named Bezalel. Not a lot of sermons on Bezalel. But Bezalel, says in Exodus 31, was filled with wisdom and understanding and artistic skill that Bezalel constructed the tabernacle of where God's presence would dwell in the Ark of the Covenant, that he was this designer. He was this architect, this artist empowered by the Spirit of God for a very specific purpose, to artistically craft the, the, the tabernacle to reflect the garden of God's presence. You read it, Exodus 31, there's like these chapters and chapters of materials and colors and measurements, very specific skill, but God's Spirit empowered him for this for a very specific purpose. I want to mention this as we talk about gifts, that there might be a difference between serving and gifting. As we talk about this idea of gifts, this diversity in the body, many of us are like, okay, I feel like I got to find my gift. I got to figure out my gift is so then I can serve in it, right? And that's, a, that's not a bad heart to have at all. But I want you to think about this. As we talk about serving, you hear about serving in the church, right? And if we are a body, if we are a family, if we are a community that belongs to one another, every family has chores. When I grew up, I had my specific chores. Empty the wastebasket, sweep the basement, sweep the steps. I hated sweeping the steps. Sweeping the steps is tough, right? That at our house, I have a couple kids and Camden, who's three, like he has chores in the house. He has chores, like pick up every chair you see, put your toys away, help me water the plants. Like he has chores. They may not be gifts. They may not be what he was born to do, but he's part of the family. If you are part of the community, if you're part of the family, I would encourage you. I would implore you, pitch in. Pitch in. Do some chores. Help out. Make some coffee, hold a baby, visit someone in the hospital, play the bass, hold the door. Whatever it is, chip in. We chip in because we're family. It doesn't have to be our spiritual gift. Well, I just want to wait to see what my gift is and then I'll serve in that. But I'll say this, you may, you may serve out of your gift. If you have the gift of encouragement, find a place to serve where you can encourage people. If you have the gift of teaching, we have many different grace group leaders and teachers, then teach. Whatever, whatever it is, you, you may serve out of your gift or, or, and I think this is more often the case, hear me on this, that you may identify your gift while you serve within the community. 
don't wait. Don't wait to find a gift that feel like that's when you have to serve. Pitch in, do some chores, you're part of the family. And in doing so, you might discover what your gift is because it happens within the context of community. The third thing I want to mention is this, that spiritual gifts within the body, you may be listening to this, you may be like, okay, yeah, spiritual gifts, that's kind of just like how everybody is a part of the puzzle. Like everybody has a part to play, like a team, like, you know, a baseball team, you got the shortstop, the catcher, the coach. Like, yeah, that makes sense, right? You just, it's basically that, right? And I would say, to some extent, yes. It's not less than that. But it is more than that. The picture Paul is giving this of, you, of unity and diversity of spiritual gifts that make up the body is, we see kind of in culture, like, yeah, everyone's got a part to play, but it's more than that. That there's a difference between the body of Christ and simply assembling a good team. There's a lot of different things. How do, how do I know that, that my spiritual gift is not just my, my personality or my talents or my, my experience? How do I know it's a spiritual gift and not just something that I worked hard at? How do I know that it's just not a talent that I was born with and it's my spiritual gift? Like, what's, what's the difference? Like, I, I like to think about these questions. I'm like, oh, spiritual gift, that sounds really cool, da, da, da. But isn't it just like, I'm good with people because that was the personality I grew up with? Or I'm really good with money and finances because that was the personality I grew up with or that's the experience I had? What's the difference? Now, I want you to look at this. I think, I, I'm a big fan of little diagrams here these days. I want you to think about this. In Psalm 139, Psalm 139 shows that we were knit together in our mother's womb, that we were fearfully and wonderfully made, that God intimately has created each and every one of us, that there is, like individuality aside, there is this uniqueness to which God has created all of us, right? That, that That is part of who we are, that God knows the hairs on your head. Psalm 139, you are uniquely made, knit together in your mother's womb. And with us, God has given us certain abilities, certain skills, certain talents, certain interests that we all kind of grew up with. But it, it's fashioned by who God has made us to be. And that is a piece of it. But then as we are part of the family of God, if we have said yes to Jesus, if you are a Christian, you have a spiritual gifting. This unique grace given by God. And what's unique and what I think is a big takeaway for this is that where these areas overlap are natural things that we have been given, born with, and the unique spiritual gifting that we are given at the point of salvation, that where they overlap, where these things found is in community. That they are identified in community, that they are exercised in community, that they show up in the community with one another. That your spiritual gift Whatever your spiritual gift is, will not be discovered on some online quiz, on Lux your spiritual gift quiz, or some questionnaire, but it'll be discovered in community with one another. As I was prepping for this, I just started thinking of people. I'm not going to say names. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I started thinking of people who have the gift of evangelism, who have the gift of encouragement, who have the gift of service. And I started thinking about people in the body of Christ. And I'm like, I got to send some postcards this week because I'm encouraged by seeing people serve. And I'll tell you this, I'm not even sure that they would identify that that's what their gift is, that they would even know what it is. I don't think Paul is as concerned with us knowing what our gift is as much as exercising it in the body that we may not even be aware of. I think about this, that there's many personality tests you can take these days, right? You got your Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, DISC. You're like a BuzzFeed, like which TV show character are you? Like there's many tests that we take today. And while many of these things are helpful, like these things are helpful to understand ourselves and our weaknesses and how we interact with others, it's great. 
But our spiritual gifts is not a personality test that we take so that we can know ourselves better, know how to be successful in this world and with others. Like that is not the goal. And this is where individualistic culture, where our patio culture comes to bear against the way of Jesus. That the purpose of spiritual gifts is very different than for the sake of ourselves or meant for us to discover ourselves. But look at 1 Corinthians 12. This is another passage that talks about spiritual gifts. It says, There are many different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Many different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Many different kinds of working, but in all of them, but but in all of them and in everyone is the same God at work. Now to each one, manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now listen, your whatever your spiritual gift is, it is not for you. Your spiritual gift isn't for you. It's for the sake of others. It's for the sake of others. I have an uncle who told a story once that that uh, for a birthday once, his dad gave him a shovel so he could shovel the driveway. Like if you're a kid on your birthday, that's like a horror. <laughs> it's, a, it's not a great birthday gift, right? But that's what it is in the, in the body of Christ. That your spiritual gift is through Christ as the head, giving you a shovel that you may serve someone else. If you have the spiritual gift of discernment, it's not so you can discern everything, but it's so that as you live in community, you may help someone else walk through a cloudy time. If your spiritual gift is service, it's so that you may come alongside others in need and have a unique sense of helping and care for them as the body. If your spiritual gift is teaching, it's not so you can look cool teaching, it's so that others may understand and grasp the depth of Jesus. I heard one pastor say, it's almost like the spiritual gift is giving you a carton of milk so that you may feed someone. Spiritual gift is giving you a broom so you may go help dust someone else's house. The gift is given to us for the common good, for others, for the building up of the church and the kingdom so that we might minister into the world. It's for the common good, it's for others, it's not for us. Now, we will find blessing when we give ourselves away for the sake of others. But it's not so we can know ourselves and become as successful who we are. It's for the sake of others. I want to end with this very practically. Because we talk about life together, as we figure out what this looks like to live together. I want to just give us today, today isn't an emotional plea, but I want you just to start to consider some things. Last week, Dan shared one of our values of Grace Church, that we share life together that we share life together, that we, we follow Jesus in community, you, you, can't, you can't do it on your own. Like that's not how, you can't listen to Hillsong and just hang out and go to heaven when you die. That's not the life that Christ has called us in light of the gospel. So many of the things Paul gives us, forgiveness and grace and all these things that he gives us of instructions on how to live, you have to do it with other people. You have to do it in life together with other people. But one of our other values here at Grace Church is this, we have no spare parts. And now, as I said, that sounds fun. You could say that on a soccer team or a, or a workplace. We have no spare parts. Everyone's got a part to play, and that's good, and that's fine. But this is one of our values because we believe this on a very theological level, that if you are a follower of Christ, if you have been redeemed by Christ and you're part of the family, you are part of the body and you have a spiritual gift for the sake of the common good, for the sake of others. You may not know what it is. And I would encourage you not to go on some journey to discover it, but I'd encourage you to start serving, start living in community with others because true belonging, as we talked about at the beginning, belonging is found in acknowledging that whether I know it or not, I am an objective part of the body of Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a part of the body.
but I can't play guitar, I can't preach, I'm not that great with people, I'm, I'm not very good with money, I'm not exactly sure how I fit in, I'm not sure if it's serving or hospitality, administration, I'm really unorganized, I'm not sure my part of the body is. You belong to the body of Christ. I'm not sure if you're an eyeball or fingernail, I don't know, but what I do know is that they are all equally as important to building up the mission in the kingdom of Jesus. You belong because Jesus gave his body for you. You are in. You are in and you belong. And we do not have any spare parts. I'm not saying you're going to take a test. You're going to find out what you're going to do. You're going to start singing on the worship team next week. That's not what I'm saying. But as we live in community, as we, as we encourage others, as we show up, as we stick it out, those things will bear out. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it's promised that we're going to always know what our spiritual gift is. Is there a chance that we are living into our spiritual gifts for the sake of others and aren't even aware of it? I think that there's a lot of good that God does through us that we aren't even aware of. And if we were, it might make us prideful. Second thing is, as I said this earlier, but I'd simply say this quickly, don't wait till you know what your spiritual gift is to serve and get involved. You're like, I'm not sure if I'm encouraged. I think we can all encourage people. Even if you don't have the gift of evangelism, of encouragement, of service, that doesn't mean we don't do these things. We are called to do the work of the evangelist. We are called to serve one another. We're called to do all these things, whether it's our gift or not. But for those of us that those things are a gift, just means God has given us a special grace in that for the sake of others. And the last thing I want to end with today, as we think about this, is maybe the question isn't what is my gift? I think that's that's the patio life. That's the What's my life? What, 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 what gift do I have? I want to know. Can I take a quiz? Can I take a test? Like, maybe that's not the question. Maybe the question is that as you live in community with others, as maybe you're in a group together, as maybe you serve together, as maybe you go over and you help paint a house together or go on a missions trip together or do service Sunday together or open doors together or make coffee together or play in the band together, whatever it is, as you serve together, maybe the question isn't, what is my spiritual gift? But it's, God, how can I help to identify spiritual gifts in others? Because as I was prepping, I was having some different conversations with just some of the different pastors flushing this out. And it was interesting, some of the stories of a lady in a group who's like, ah, I'm so bad at evangelism, that is not what I'm good at. And meanwhile, everyone in the group is looking at each other because every week she's got a story of someone that she talked to about Jesus. Or I think of a friend I have who, who's good at a lot of different things, but what he maybe didn't realize is that he is the most encouraging person in one of my areas of ministry. And his spiritual gift is encouraging and blowing wind in the sails into especially young guys as they're cutting their teeth in, in the worship ministry. Like it's one of his spiritual gifts. And maybe it's not what's my gift, but it's helping to identify in others, calling it out in others. Hey, I am so encouraged by who you are. Hey, you have such good insight when we, when we talk as a group. I think, I think you've got a gift there. Hey, you, I feel so loved when you serve us. Like, I don't even know if you realize. Like, you, you just sign up for stuff. You're like, oh, I'll do that. Oh, yeah, I'll take care of that. And you may just be just doing it. But the way in which you serve is really building us up. There's people coming to my mind right now. And maybe it's not what's my gift, but it's helping to identify gifts in others. Our, our culture influence wants to turn these spiritual gifts into a personality test so we can know ourselves. But maybe our goal is not to focus on discovering gifts, but to affirm it in others. That there is a unique unity in diversity, not in hierarchy, 
but in this beautiful picture of Christ by the grace given to us, that we live life together. We pray together this morning. So Jesus, I pray that we, wherever someone is listening today, that we might know that we belong. And Jesus, I pray that you would help us not to always let our feelings dictate whether we belong or not, but we would objectively know that because you gave your body for the sake of us, and if we have said yes to that, put our faith in that, that we belong. And I pray that you would help us, Jesus, to step into understanding the part that we play, the role that you have for us. Pray that you challenge us in that, Christ. I pray that as we interact with one another, we can be so com- comparative. We can think someone is better than us, or we are better than someone else, or our gift or our experience is better than theirs. Jesus, that is the way of our culture, and I pray that we would not conform to the patterns of this world, but that we would have sober and humble judgment of ourselves, that we may see ourselves and see one another through the beam of the cross, and that in light of your mercy, We might see ourselves humbly and honestly and that we might see the picture you've given us and we might serve and give away our lives for the sake of others, for the common good, for the sake of your kingdom. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.